Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the news this month is flooded with images of white supremacists storming the U.S. Capitol, of a Confederate flag being carried through its halls. Adults are not the only ones seeing these images and hearing these stories of racialized violence and bigotry. They're seeping through to our kids, too. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we explore how to engage children about what's happening in America in 2021 and the racialized world around them. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Today is MLK Day. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of a day when his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Today, we're grappling with seeing white supremacists and neo-Nazis brandish weapons and ransack the U.S. Capitol. We're grappling with fears that racialized violence will become an even bigger part of our politics or even our communities. How do we talk to our kids about these events, about race, and prepare them for the racialized world they face? Joining me is Allison Briscoe-Smith, a child clinical psychologist, professor and director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Briscoe-Smith. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Melissa Giraud and Andrew Grant Thomas. They're co-founders of Embrace Race, an organization dedicated to sharing and developing best practices for raising and caring for kids in the context of race. Thanks so much for joining us, Melissa Giraud. Thanks for having us, Mina. Also glad to have you, Andrew Grant Thomas. Great to be with you, Mina. And Dr. Briscoe-Smith, I will start with you. I think one of the first questions that often comes up for parents, especially of elementary age children, is should we even talk about these recent events? I mean, is it true that they're probably noticing more about what's happening than we think? Definitely. They're definitely noticing more, um, we think. Um, I think there's a sense that perhaps children maybe aren't noticing and aren't seeing. So even if they're not watching the news or on the internet, they are noticing our response as parents. So I, I would really encourage us to just assume that kids are hearing more um, and being impacted more than we might um, we might think. And Melissa Giraud, would you agree with that? And if so, what what is this bringing up for kids potentially? I 100% agree with that. Um, I want to just say, Mina, that Andrew and I are so thrilled to be on with Allison as well, who... Um, 
has we consider part of the embrace race community and who we've turned to and learned so much from as well so um absolutely uh, they are noticing and what's a great approach is to ask them you know what they know and what and that's something that works at different age levels right um and what they will tend to notice i mean this is you have to understand and you do i'm sure that the onslaught this has been going on for a long time right this racialized violence um, against communities of color and uh, Martin Luther King fought against it and made some headway as did the whole movement that made Martin Luther King uh, Dr. King and um, we continue to fight we, we celebrate the gains today and we continue to be aware of the way in which there's been this relentless um, you know, this relentless fight against things like voting rights and full citizenship for people of color. So kids are really have noticed it all along. And there have been so many high profile um, incidents of racialized violence uh, in Allison. We, we actually met Allison and started working together. Uh, we invited her on a, a conversation we had. Um, I think it was the summer of 2016 when uh, Philando Castile and um, Alton Sterling were both murdered by police. So it's been kind of the same conversation si since. And this has been, um, you know, this is a little different, uh, shocking, but not surprising to many of us. Um, and I, I want to sort of underline that kids are, you know, noticing all of it and interpreting it um, in the ways that they can developmentally and according to um, the information that they, their experiences and the information that they're being given. Mm, because what are the ways that they do tend to interpret it developmentally? I mean, Andrew Grant Thomas, as Embrace Race has noted, I mean, even babies notice racial differences. And by around age four, kids even begin to show signs of racial bias. Can you talk a little bit about developmentally, at what ages children are are reacting to racial differences and given their age, how they are making sense of it, what their developing brains allow. Well, I mean, as you said, you know, um, yes, in infancy, they're noticing differences that we later come to understand as racial differences. Uh, at that point, you know, as early as three months, six months, they're noticing some of these things. You know, they're gravitating toward uh, people who look like them in this country, probably because, right, 90% or more of infants are uh, supported or cared for by people who look like them, right? So they're gravitating toward the familiar. But later on, as you say, around age, even as early as three, at four, at five years old, uh, that familiarity, you know, that sort of preference deepens into something that we might recognize as bias uh, in many, many cases. And that bias can also, um, translate into behavior, right? So you might see inclusion, exclusion on the basis of skin color from playgroups, for example. Uh, you might see, you know, appreciation of or knowledge of stereotypes and infants, sorry, four-year-old, five-year-old kids being able to respond to uh, stereotypes and to hold those stereotypes themselves. Uh, what changes later is that, um, you know, those attitudes, those sensibilities uh, don't become embedded until adolescence, typically, 
right? Which means that those earlier years are a phenomenal opportunity to work with kids uh, in as those sensibilities are beginning to emerge. Yes, and a similar question to you, Dr. Briscoe Smith, about just, you know, there is footage, right, of people carrying Confederate flags, of clothing with anti-Semitic messages. What What is this telling our children? What kinds of things can seep into their consciousness that, you know, you may have even heard from your own children? Well, so what is not only seeping within their consciousness, but they're, they are facing, especially I'll speak to not only my children who are kids of color, but the kids that I serve, um, is that they're under threat. Um, and I think it's not unusual to have kids of color ask questions of, am I okay? Will I be safe? You know, the dinnertime conversation that we had last, actually two weeks ago, was one of, are we okay and are we safe? That's going to be a really common, um, really developmentally grounded question that children from little ones all the way up are asking in some way, shape, or form. I, I also think that there's a communication and a question about what's going on for white children as they watch this and a big opportunity to intervene um, for white kids as um, they're seeing this, to, to engage in a really elaborated kind of conversation. I'm quite worried actually about the ways in which um, things like we're seeing and that things as Melissa has also kind of spoken to, um, how things have gone over the past couple of years um, are actually really uh, radicalizing our white children. Um, so I think there's an opportunity to, to intervene um, here and to hold some hard conversations, but our kids are, are capable. And, and if we're not engaging with them around this, then we're really leaving them up to their own to figure it out. And developmentally, you know, little kids think that things are their fault um, or that they're responsible. And they're also not great at um, that kind of differentiation. They, they generalize. So, you know, the conversation that my son had at first was, so it's all Republicans. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, let's, let's slow down. Let's, let's think about this. But but quickly, the kind of, quote unquote, black and white kind of thinking becomes really kind of generalizable. Is what they're trying to figure out is who might hurt me or, or who do I belong to? So it's an opportunity that we have to help them get elaborated around that um, and to not fall into traps of, of othering and not fall into traps of um, overgeneralizing. And Melissa Giroux and, and Andrew Grant-Thomas, what kinds of conversations or things have you heard from your own children as well? Yeah, um, it's, Mina, it's really been a lot of the same, this feeling that Allison described of being under threat, but also because we've been having these conversations for a long time, um, there's also, we have always brought up, you know, that um, things, for example, Allison was talking about the opportunity for uh, white families or white um, guardians, parents to talk to their children about this or kids in their circle. Um, it's also true that we, you, you kids can um, sometimes think if they're seeing sort of white violence against people of color that this is if they don't know a lot of white people, you know, or if you don't talk about it explicitly, um, they might think that this is what white people are like. And so a conversation we've been having for a long time is about, um, about the people we know in our circles, diverse circles that are um, pulling in the same direction with us, you know, mm -hmm. um, that are positioned differently, 
um, and even in within our own family, we're positioned differently, sort of racially, um, but that are working for you know liberation, for uh, justice, social justice, racial justice, other forms of justice for all people, right? Um, and part of the responsibility then becomes if you're really talking about those specific people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your friend circle at school. Um, if you're really talking about those specific people who were doing stuff and are, would protect your children, um, then what you're also doing is building this very, uh, it makes kids feel more secure, not only because those people have their back, but because they have agency, because they have the backs of people who are positioned differently from them, right? So if your child is documented, a documented kid of color, um, and they have a friend who's undocumented, you know, they are safer in that in a situation where documentation is called um, into question. And so they can stand up for their friends. So it just um, makes the coalition of people who want justice for all sort of broader and makes them feel safer to sort of respond that way. And Mina, I wonder if yes, I can I just find one, one point, right? So both Allison and Melissa have made the point that really your response has to be calibrated to the kid, right? So you know, Allison made the point, especially around the racial identity of the kid, that white children and uh, children of color might be receiving or picking up on somewhat different messages and therefore need a different sort of intervention uh, from you as a parent, you know, as a, a caregiver. Um, you know, Melissa drew some distinctions as well. And, you know, you asked about our children. We have two girls who are two and a half years apart, 12 and 10 years old, and they're quite different children, right? And they respond quite differently, not only as a function of their you know, being different ages and different developmental stages, but they're just different personalities and respond to the world differently. So our older girl, you know, who's 12, uh, her orientation has been sort of much more of curiosity, right? What's going on? How do we understand this? Our younger girl is, is, is uh, yeah, tends to be, she's anxious. She gets really anxious about it. So we're inclined to say quite different things, you know, to accommodate those differences in personality. Yes, and we'll get into more of what are those different things that you say right after the break. We're talking with Andrew Grant Thomas and Melissa Giroux of Embrace Race and Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, a child clinical psychologist and professor and director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On this MLK Day, we're talking about how to talk about race with kids and the current climate of racialized politics. We're talking with Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, a child clinical psychologist and professor and director of diversity, equity, inclusion at the Wright Institute. Melissa Giraud, co-founder of Embrace Race, a resource for helping adults and educators talk with children about race and race issues. And Andrew Grant Thomas, also co-founder of Embrace Race. You, our listeners, are with us and we want to hear from you. How are your kids processing today's racially charged current events? How are you talking to them about the racial violence that we've witnessed and about the fears uh, that many have that it will become more of a feature 
of our lives. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Andrew Grant Thomas, you were just before the break making the point about how kids are are responding differently. How do you engage or talk with the child who is experiencing anxiety or seems anxious about what's going on? Right. So um, one point, um, even before we get to the anxiety point, I think the basic takeaway is, as Alison often says, as Melissa often says, as I often say, is you are the expert in your child, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, calibrate according to your child and what you know about your child. Uh, in terms of anxiety, so our younger girl is definitely the more anxious one. She's the one who might be kept awake all night, right, by the last thing she heard. And if that's a hard thing, you know, we're going to be very aware of that. Um, so Melissa spoke to some of this. Certainly, it's partly about giving her assurances where we can, right? So a big part of her anxiety is about her own personal safety, as Allison said, is often true of kids. So, you know, this is a case in the case of what happened in the Capitol and the, sort of all the dynamic that went into that, the threat, the danger represented there, we, our particular family is probably less vulnerable to that uh, than many others. So we can give her some assurances. And at the same time, as Melissa said, we want to be clear that there are lots of other families that might be more vulnerable and that we care about them too. So it's not enough for us to feel safe. We need to think about what is it that we can do, reasonably do, to support those uh, who are less safe than we are. And why would your family be less vulnerable to that? Well, for one thing, part of it is literally just where we live, right? We live in Western Massachusetts um, in, you know, what's often called a bubble. Now, to be sure, it's less of a bubble than people suppose. Mm. Uh, But certainly our children don't go to school you know, uh, or go about their day before COVID and now fearing for their own physical safety. And we don't go uh, fearing for their physical safety as well. You know, we don't see, um, you know, uh, there certainly are not, uh, we would be very surprised if we heard that a lot of people from Amherst, for example, participated in the storming of Capitol Hill. Uh, it's just not uh, not that that place. So, right. as a practical matter, that's important. And then, in terms of, I, I mean, I don't know, Doctor Briscoe Smith, if you have anything to add around the anxiety question before I move on to to the um, the other sort of description of how children are responding that Andrew Grant yeah. Thomas gave, which which was that his older daughter is curious. But in terms of just the anxious question, do you have anything you wanted to yeah. add there? Yeah, I mean, I think my the thing that kind of resonated and came up for me as as we were um, you know talking is I'm anxious too. So and before we move to kind of assuaging and kind of getting rid of anxiety, I think we need to actually center and locate ourselves. Mm-hmm. How are we doing? How are we understanding this? Um, I'm I'm a little nervous. So if my nervousness is is present, then I can tell you that my kids will pick up on it, um, and that the the kids that I'm in relationship so. I think it's about not jumping to provide safety when there actually really isn't any, but rather honing in on the small, concrete ways that we can provide safety in this kind of moment. And I think also what, you know, Andrew's kind of offering us is an opportunity for us to be elaborated about it, to think about power and privilege as we, as we think about this, not that I'm doing something wrong or that I should feel guilty, but rather 
you know, my proximity to the capital probably means that I have, um, or actually my lack of proximity means that I'm not as worried as I am for my, for example, my, my family that lives in Maryland or my family that lives near the capital. So we can do the yes and. I'm nervous and I can still be available to help out. Um, but I think sometimes we're so eager to, um, to seek comfort and to seek um, wellness that we forget that we actually have to help our kids learn how to manage through anxiety. How, how are we making it and how do we offer our tools to our children as well? Yes. Melissa Giraud, the description of your older daughter being curious and asking questions, how do you, how do you engage there? What, what is a good way to do that and make sure that they're fully aware of what is happening, but at the same time, um, not to the extent where it could ultimately generate anxiety? Right, right. Well, uh, I want to just uh, say, you know, second and third, um, what Allison said first, that we're anxious too, you know, that this has all made us anxious and attending to that um, is really important um, when you're thinking about kind of parenting, right, through all this. Um, and how do you, and having good mechanisms for dealing with your anxiety so that you can um, model that, you know, for your kids. Um, yeah. Well, the older, you know, our older child is 12 and she, um, she's a very particular kind of person. She reads a ton as well. And, um, you know, is, is fairly, um, we'll have, you know, sometimes enough information to, uh, you know, we can get enough information to hang ourselves, right? So she'll have information from all over. And then the best approach I find with her when she asks questions is often to ask other, you know, to answer some questions, but then to ask other questions, you know, uh, and what Allison, just helping her uh, complicate the picture a little bit, you know, what Allison was saying about, um, you know, her, her son responding, oh, is it Republicans who do this? And no, in fact, you know, is it white people who do this? No, um, it's, it's more complicated, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's uh, really helping her um, as, as much as she wants to know. And, and I also know, I mean, Allison um, gave me some of the best parenting advice ever once, which was what, you know, that you're the expert in your kid and that it doesn't take a PhD in child, you know, identity development to parent your kid. So one of the things, you know, that I have to admit happens more often than it should with my kids is I start sort of talk, ask questions, and then I talk a little more than I should and their eyes start to glaze over, you know, and then I realize like, oh, you know, I did too much talking. Let me ask another question or let me, you know, leave it for another day or ask her if she has any questions. So um, that's my approach with an older kid. Well, let me go to some of our calls coming in. Padma in Fremont join us. Hi, Padma. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. My comment is about the Indian child from India, Indian child or Hindu kids that get bullied quite a bit, quite a lot, but they never voice it. The parents are silent. The kids are silent because they're made to feel ashamed. Hinduism is really a polytheistic religion. It's pluralistic. We can, God is everywhere. God is in every form. So you can worship God in any form. It can be as a piece of wood or stone because everything is considered divine, just like the cow or any animal is sacred. So that is the underpinning philosophy. But the people don't realize that, and the kids are bullied. And also on the basis of caste system, which has been outlawed um, 70 decades ago, and we've had 
lower caste chief ministers and presidents and whatever and whatever, and everybody's progressing from education in economy now. And also city after city is passing this anti-CAA, anti-India bill based on propaganda because that CAA is to give refuge to persecuted minorities in Islamic countries surrounding India. But there's propaganda and cities are passing anti-India bills. So all these put together, our children in colleges and schools are made to feel bad. First of all, we look different. We look brown and different. First of all, that is there. And after that, some people have accents. That's also different. But then the religion is very different. But there's no tolerance. And, you know, children should be safe when they go to school. That's all. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I don't know if you had a specific question for our guests about... No, no, but I think we should. We should. How do we make this better? How do we educate the teachers? How do we promote tolerance? We talk about Judaism. We talk about African-Americans. We talk about other communities. No one opens their mouth and says anything for Hindu children. Why not? Uh, Padma, thanks. This reminds me a little bit, Alison Briscoe-Smith, of, of a point you made in, in one of your pieces in terms of recommending um, actions for kids. Is just, first, trying to address the issues that you can address, and if you don't know how, to try to learn more about it. Exactly, exactly. And to, you know, to keep, you know, to keep opening our sphere of commonality bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, a lot of the, the work that kind of undergirds, and I'll defer to, to Andrew most to talk about this, is around ideas around othering and belonging. What do we do to kind of expand our circles of belonging? So as Padma is kind of talking about that our circle of belonging includes um, the, the pieces that she's talking about or includes the places that people are invisibilized and marginalized. So, you know, okay, that sounds complicated, but let's get back down to it in terms of this is something that our kids have available to them and have available to them through our books, our conversations, our relationships, and our connections. That, you know, this is tangible and available to us. And when I say this, meaning that we can expand how we think about and care about people who seem different than us, whatever that difference is. That, that that's, I think, our charge as parents. And also, as Padma is talking about, it's our charge within education. And, um, you know, I've been engaged in this work for a long time. And the thing that's really different than when I started this work in the early 2000s is that we now have abundant resources. Um, and Embrace Race is a, is a resource. And there are lots of places that we can go if you want to think about, well, how do I start this conversation? How would I think about this? Who could I talk to? That, that we have the resources. So we can be equipped to engage in hard conversations to expand our circles of, of, of honestly, love and belonging. Andrew Grant Thomas, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add as well to what Alison Briscoe Smith is saying, but also what this strikes me, what strikes me in listening to this is that so much work is also proactive. I mean, we're talking about reacting to the recent events of uh, what happened in the Capitol insurrection, the kinds of racist symbols that we saw there, the kinds of feelings that it generates for kids. But at the same time, it sounds like you know, there are so many opportunities for us to be proactive so that when these types of incidents happen, we have some kind of a, a way of engaging. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, well, that's a huge point, uh, Mina, um, because ideally what we're doing is we're starting very early, right, for the reasons we said before, that kids are, in fact, developing their ideas about race very, very, very early. Uh, so they start and then it accumulates from there. 
So ideally, we would be doing the same, right? We'd be starting those conversations very, er very early. Maybe you're talking about skin color and you talk about other sort of physical differences. You're talking about what they mean, what they don't mean, and you build so that, yes, when, you know, Charlottesville happens or Capitol Hill happens or, um, you know, George Floyd is murdered, uh, that certainly that's a hard time to for that's hard timing for that to be the first conversation that you're having right with with the child um so uh yeah you, you want to build a scaffold uh on on which you continue to build continue to develop continue to have different kinds of conversations uh part of the advantage of that too is you know a lot of us uh feel a lot of parents a lot of adults feel super super anxious about having these conversations because right we think of it in too many too often as sort of the one big conversation, right? Or the occasional conversation you're going to have. And it's so huge, it becomes so freighted uh, that it's terrifying. And then if it doesn't go as well as you want, if you can't find the words, if it, you know, then you feel like you've lost this big opportunity. But suppose instead we treated this as, you know, an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. And so certainly some of them won't go as well as you would like them to go. Sometimes you don't have the information you wish you had at your fingertips, but if you plan to come back to it, you plan to keep learning, doing better as you know better, uh, it'll be a lot easier to engage each of those conversations, you know, as occasion arises. Mm. Yeah, Can, I, I wanted, yeah, Melissa, you know, if I could add that uh, I really feel for Padma and for, um, you know, the there are many a Asian, uh, children of Asian descent um, in the U.S. are, the most bullied for uh, for race, right? Mm -hmm. The most the, the hate crimes reported are sort of highest, right? For explicitly for racial reasons. Um, so what she's saying is absolutely um, on target with the research and with many people's experience, right? Um, the in terms of Andrew was talking about the we want to affirm our kids and tell our stories and teach not only in our homes, but we want schools to be teaching about different communities, you know, using books, using um, the stories of people in the community to come in and sort of be part of that uplift, that empowerment. Um, we want to be doing that so that, um, you know, so that when there's a crisis, uh, we aren't, kids aren't then just seeing um, a victimized someone who's from a victimized group as a victim, right? Because there's plenty of other things that make up our, what it means to be black or what it means to be Asian or Hindu, right? Um, so that, so that's, uh, that's really important to underline. Um, I also wanna say that there's a, when we talk about, you know, the stuff that's happened in the Capitol, um, although there are, you know, lots of people of different across races involved in the resistance and um, and less groups, you know, involved in the um, in I guess the insurrection. Um, we don't often hear about them. A lot of times in our in American culture, things get reduced to black and white, and a lot of people feel left out. And it's absolutely not true that it's just black and white. There are a lot of um, Asian, Native American, let let. TNX people, multiracial people, um, who really feel left out of the, the conversation and, and for that reason struggle to sort of insert themselves mm -hmm. uh, in a way that feels meaningful into these movements for greater justice for everyone. And so that's part of the work that um, Embrace Race is trying to do is to really 
a pushback against the it's all black and white and it's all uh, about black versus or it's or also that it's white versus non-white it's actually um people of all races having to treat people of across races uh better because uh, our children who are black multiracial could treat another person of color outside of their race badly if we don't um, prepare them and show them the respect um, that they should be paying to people of other groups. So I just wanted to underline that. I, I'm glad you did underline that. And I'm also struck by uh, what Andrew was saying about how these kinds of conversations, just the entry point to them can be difficult. But one of the things that I, I really liked in some of the tips that, that you had given on Embrace Race was just beginning with your own histories and experiences of uh, belonging to racial, ethnic, and cultural groups, or being identified by others as belonging to these groups as a way in, Melissa Giroux? Is that something you've used with your own children of color? Absolutely. I mean, those of you on the radio can't see me, but I'm a multiracial woman, Black and white, and have um, often been asked, you know, what am I? So sort of, I don't, um, I, I can pass or uh, present as, as white, especially as an adult, that's been happening more, but I get misidentified and um, it's really, you know, it's been really important for me and my kids to say, um, you have the way you identify yourself racially and you have how other people identify you um, because I want to be able to carry, you know, my stories and my identities, but I also want to be able to acknowledge um, that I'm, you know, that in the world, you know, people are going to see me. I have, I have light skin privilege, you know, and even white presenting privilege and people are going to see me a different way. And that's also part of my story, you know, both, both really, um, can be true. And that can be a helpful way for people in between, um, who get mis misidentified. You, you might be, you know, Filipino and people think you're, you know, Mexican or, Muslim or something. And that happens all the time and is really confusing for kids. Yes. Well, we'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're talking about how to talk to kids about race and the current climate of racialized politics with Melissa Giraud, co-founder of Embrace Race, and Andrew Grant Thomas, also co-founder of Embrace Race, a resource for helping adults and educators talk with kids about race. Allison Briscoe-Smith is with us as well, a child clinical psychologist, professor, and director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute. You, our listeners, are also with us. How are your kids processing today's race? racially charged events, the racial violence they witnessed potentially at the Capitol or the footage that has been crowding our news feeds, computer screens, and so on. Did you shield them from the events at the Capitol? Or if you talked about it, what messages were you hoping to send? You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us at forum at kqed.org. This listener tweets, I can't unreservedly recommend it, but growing up as the child of Jews born in Europe, the message I always got was more like, we're safe for now. Pay attention. Children can sometimes be incredibly sensitive to BS, so just you're safe, 
might not cut it. Let me go to Karen in Ventura. Hi, Karen. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Hi, hi, yeah. Um, uh, I have a little great-grandson, Jack. He's seven years old. He came over last week, and he said, what's a Nazi? And I said, why why are you asking me that? And he said, well, well, I guess his little friend down the street had called him a Nazi because he's white. His little friend is a black kid. And I... I have to explain what a Nazi is to a seven-year-old. That's a little young. Uh, you know, yes. it sounds to me like there's enough hate coming from all four corners. There's too much. And you know, I think the wealthy 1% are sitting up in their penthouses laughing at us. They don't care. And we're all fighting over scraps. We're fighting each other. Let me get Dr. Briscoe Smith's reaction to what you're saying, Karen. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, many of us all have a kind of reaction kind of in our gut and, you know, how hard that really is, um, how hard it is to have to to explain that. And also thinking about much as the previous kind of person who tweeted in about how there are some kids that were raised up and, and born with having that conversation because of a necessity. Um, and, you know, I think there's this idea that's often kind of um, held, which is wanting to preserve the innocence of our children and that we can elaborate on that, that some kids get to be innocent and some kids don't. I, I do also agree that there's this big tension around um, how much hate there is, how much, um, you know, uh, I, I'll use my child developmental sort big feelings there are out there, right, that are coming through our, our kids. I, I want to challenge the notion of kind of protecting um, by not engaging in a conversation, but rather that we have the opportunity to protect our children by talking with children. I, I was able to be in dialogue with Dr. Ibram Kendi, and he was the person that really um, talked about in his push around kind of anti-racism that our protection is not through silence, but rather our protection is by having conversations with our kids. Now, does it have to be, um, you know, a conversation about um, white supremacy with my three-year-old? No, but is, is it a conversation that I have with my three-year-old around fairness and justice and how we love people? Then yes. So that's a conversation that we can kind of build build up upon. And I, I do think there's this kind of place that, that I feel personally in and also in the communities that I serve where um, I was able to actually turn to my kids as they were watching what was on the news and reference the previous conversations that we've had, that, that we're building up, right? And that my kids' ability to see and understand what was going on and not have it be directly, um, yes, overwhelming, but have it fit into something that they've heard before was because we've been building up on these conversations. And, and actually, all of us are building up on those conversations, whether it's, you know, Karen's kind of talking about or other folks, are we talking about how we treat each other at home all the time? That's our reference point. Hmm. So I think sometimes we get caught up in, do I have to use particular terms or use the right terms? But we should and are having these baseline conversations of how we treat and love people um, every day. So, so let's think about that as the baseline kind of conversation to come back to. Well, this listener asks, any advice for families talking to kids about, about talking to kids about grandparents or uncles or other people in the family who have political views that they object to? If your parents have outspoken views that feel racist to you, how do you discuss that with your kids? Uh, Andrew Grant Thomas, I don't know if you want to start trying to answer that one. Yeah. Yeah, this is... Um... This is a challenging one. 
um, that a lot of us uh, are dealing with uh, in a very active ways, right? So all those sort of proverbial conversations are at Thanksgiving, you know, that people talk about. Um, you know, so I think for me, one starting point would be you need to speak up, right? So we've said uh, really throughout this conversation is threaded through this idea that we really are models for our children. And the younger our children, the more like the, the larger we loom as models uh, in ways that we may not even appreciate, right? What we say, what we do, what we don't say, what we don't do. Uh, so even if, right, there's a family member in this case who is, um, yeah, offering some really challenging ideas that we disagree with and it would cause some tension, some difficulty. We wonder how our children will feel about that person if we, you know, were to sort of forcefully push back. I think that your child needs to know uh, that that the belief, you know, offered, the articulated by this family member is not one that you subscribe to. Uh, you need to be clear about that. You need to be explicit and you need to say why. Um, and if possible, certainly, if the relationship allows it, certainly I would encourage you to have a conversation with that uh, person. The person is entitled to his, her, their beliefs, but not necessarily to sharing, to sharing that and influencing the way, right, how the, the beliefs that your child mm. uh, develops over time. Yes. Dr. Briscoe-Smith, what, what Andrew Grant Thomas is saying reminds me of your advice to create like a family motto or to clarify your family's values with your children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the opportunity in it to think about, you know, whether it's a family motto or a value statement. What I encourage families to do is just think about the stuff that you say to each other that starts with we. So, you know, we are kind or we are strong or we climb every mountain, what, whatever it is, the thing that you say. And actually in the conversation here where, you know, and this is a conversation that I think is, as Andrew kind of alluded to that, that many of us are having is, you know, I've definitely had the conversation of, you know, we love relative so-and-so um, and we disagree. And we believe that people should be treated kindly and fairly if by all. Um, and, you know, so it's coming back to who the we is. And I actually think that this is, a, again, another opportunity that of course in our families, we're going to have difference. I mean, does everybody get along everywhere in every family? No. So this is a, a particular kind of, um, accentuated point in terms of how we're thinking about kind of things politically, but we've had to in family struggle with how do I get along with that family member who's different? And that's also our opportunity to, to teach our children how to do that. I, I do know, and there's some research about this kind of coming out a recent article that, that family estrangement is increasing. Our, our difficulty in having these kinds of conversation is kind of, I think, ramping up. And I think we have, again, the opportunity to articulate, who are we as a family? Who, who are we? Um, and to say those kind of value statements or mission statements and to help ground our children in how do we love each other across our differences? Um, that's not having to be complicit, though, with poor treatment. I think, as Andrew's kind of saying, too, that we have the opportunity to actually um, put power and voice to how we feel. And I think I mean, I'm sure many folks who are listening can think about how their kids have done that. You know, recently our family had very much a similar thing where I was very proud that one of our kids was like, we don't believe that. Um, and that's not how we treat each other, that they actually said that to their, their relatives. Hmm. So that was a moment of tension and nervousness and pride. Wow. Um, well, let me go to caller Larry and Colton. Hi, Larry. Hey, good morning. Your guests are very astute. Um, I just wanted to know what they thought about sharing the idea or the thought 
or the belief of a social construct, race as a social construct, because I think sometimes we categorize everyone, and it kind of reminds me of the factions in some of the novels that we read. And being a, a high school English teacher, I've, I feel that there's a all of the dead white authors are losing some relevance to a lot of our students. And when you bring in books like The Hate You Give and The Black Kids, um, it really helps our students see that. But I think sometimes we need to see more similarities and differences. And it's kind of like, um, you know, all we are saying is give peace a chance and you're talking about love. And something I find with students is so many of them are shocked when you are nice to them when they're misbehaving. They're really shocked. But I just want to know what, what your guests thought about social construct, race as a social construct. Uh, let me see. Melissa Giroux, would you like to respond to Larry? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your question, Larry. We talk about, I mean, race obviously has very real effects. You know, it's a social construct that um, is used uh, that will determine who has access uh, and privileges and all kinds of things. So it's an, it's important, but it's still a social construct. And I think that that's one of the, um, like sort of one of the blessings of being personally uh, a mixed race person who gets, whose identity gets uh, confused, um, but socially is that I can say, yeah, race doesn't make sense. You know, and if you lined everyone up by skin color or you thought, or you tried to categorize people across the world racially, it would break apart. Like the categories actually don't make sense and they're um, in service to something, uh, they're, they're meant to divide us, right? So um, so I think absolutely you need to hold both of those, that it's a construct and that it has real effects, right? And that we can um, work to uh, mitigate those effects and to sort of change what that means, right? Um, I, I do think what you're, what you're saying about, I'm, I'm so glad that the books that are being used in your classroom and other classrooms are sort of changing, um, but I, I do, take your point about um, teaching kids to see the similarities between uh, themselves as well. And that's a thing that Beverly Daniels Tatum talks about a lot, right? With, um, uh, especially in her book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? That that's the, the role that educators can, one of the roles that educators and other caregivers can play is to push against those categories and say, you know, um, Andrew and, um, this other person um, who racially isn't like him in your class, let's say um, Jessica, Jessica and Andrew, they might not be racially the same, but you know what? They have this weird obsession with, you know, science fiction or with uh, dystopian novels or, or something that connects them. I'm going to put them into a group together so we can really draw out those similarities um, in our kids in all kinds of different ways and dispositions. That's really helpful. Well, yes, you know, what, Andrew, what add, Grant Thomas, just please. Just one thing to that. Yeah, which is, which is this, you know, the, um, so yes, race is a, a social construct, meaning, you know, on one hand, there certainly are, are differences, actual differences in physical appearance and hair texture and width of the nose and color of the skin, all of those things. Race comes in, right, when we map those onto more meaningful characteristics, like do people work hard? Are they smart? Are they you know, like to be good friends or do they have leadership capacities, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the, the idea that racial social construct is often taken by some 
as an argument for why we should pretend it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. right? If only we pretended it doesn't exist, then it wouldn't have any, any effects. And that just clearly is not the case, right? We have literally centuries of evidence, including research that shows we don't act as if it's not true. And therefore, as Melissa says, it has real impact in the world. Just to give two very, very quick examples, take a look, you know, go, go to Google and type in segregation and Philadelphia or, or, or um, Milwaukee or New York or Boston or Chicago, LA, any number of places. And you will see that we certainly um, uh, situate ourselves, right, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, as if race very, very much mattered. And perhaps even more important, think about your own social networks. Think about the last handful of people who came over to your house, right? Some of us might have a fairly diverse, racially and ethnically diverse group of people uh, who came over to our house over the last six months or pre-COVID, you know, the, the previous six months before that. But if you're like most people, you'll find that if you're a white person, it's a really, really good bet that almost everyone, if not everyone who came over to your house or when, in whom you, you know, had a confidential, meaningful conversation is also white. You're also going to find that that's largely true even if you're Black or if you're Asian American, right? So we, and this is even true among people who are, again, very quote-unquote well-meaning, might believe themselves to be colorblind, et cetera. The point is we very much act as if race matters and therefore it does. Andrew Grant Thomas and Melissa Giroux are co-founders of Embrace Race. Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith is a child clinical psychologist and professor and director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Catherine writes, this is a time for the country to move forward and take the next steps toward racial justice. Our children can learn about history. What did children and families feel during the Civil War or the people who took the side of Martin Luther King Jr.? These are frightening times when history is being made. We are living a time when our actions can actually make a difference. Susan writes, what are you? My racially mixed children heard this question often growing up and even now as adults. They took the approach that it is often genuine interest and sometimes just clueless curiosity. In either case, they chose not to take it as an attack. As a child psychologist, I'm grateful for the way they chose to deal with their unique identities. And Prele writes, a Hindu parent should talk about casteism with his or her kids the same way a white parent should talk about racism with his or her kids. Denial of racism doesn't help. Denial of casteism does not help Hindus either. Let me go to Anise in San Jose. Hi, Anise, join us. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I have a comment and a question. Um, the comment is that as unfortunate as this event is, uh, I'm seeing the silver lining in this. My 11-year-old twins who thought politics is the most boring thing, overnight they have come to understand that uh, this is something that could be very impactful in your life. Um, we took the tour of the Capitol a few years back, and to see the pictures and what could happen overnight has created this sort of like visceral images and changes in them. I'm really hopeful this is going to make them be more aware of what's going on and potentially even participate more actively in their civic duties as they grow up. Well, thank you for sharing that, Anise. I, I, I don't know if you had a question there as well you had mentioned, but I... I think what you're talking about in terms of engagement, in terms of recognizing um, what what can be done and being active participants really does echo what initially you were saying, Dr. Briscoe-Smith, in terms of, you know, reminding, especially on this MLK Day, of 
people who act and how we all can act? Yeah, that there's so many different ways that we can act. You know, I'm I'm heartened to hear that this may be, you know, the the opening up of political activism of 11-year-olds, right? That this may be the opportunity. We've got lots of evidence that this is exactly what ends up kind of can happen. You know, I think about um, the young folks within Oakland who started, you know, Youth Against the Apocalypse, which is a climate change organization run by kids in young intersectional places of color, right? So there are these kind of opportunities that kids can take a step and take a lead in this. Um, so I want us to pay attention to our resilience and our opportunities there because that's really necessary because there are lots of folks who are hurting so that we can do this together. You know, we don't have to take this all on by ourselves, but rather can be in coalitions of, um, of promise and coalitions that actually are, are living out what we're supposed to be kind of pausing to memorialize in this day, which is Martin Luther King's words and, and calls and, you know, bending the arc of history to moral justice is our opportunity um, you know, we have that opportunity to, to do that today through our children. And Dr. Briscoe-Smith, leave us with one resource, please, in 10 seconds. Embrace Race is the resource that I would point <laughs> folks to, the organization that you can find. Um, and also, please take a look at um, Dr. Ibram Kendi um, and Beverly Tatum's work. Um, Beverly those are great Tatum books, is. great resources. So, so there's lots available to us. Well, that's Great to hear. Dr. Briscoe Smith, Melissa Giroux, and Andrew Grant Thomas of Embrace Race. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And of course, Embrace Race can be found at embracerace.org. Judy Campbell produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Thank you. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.